Hello, everyone. My guest today is Patrick Studener. He is the former head of expansion of Uber. He was actually one of the first, I think, 100 employees who joined Uber in 2013. Um, now Uber has more than 20,000 employees. So he was very early on, worked directly with the founders. After on, he moved to Vault, which is, which is like a food delivery service as a CEO, worked there for one and a half years. And then recently, for the last three years, he was the vice president and head, head of uh, the region Europe for BERT, which is a, yeah, basically e-scooter startup. You should probably be familiar with that. It's a very interesting interview because he has this view of different roles in growth startups. So Bird, Vault, and Uber are all companies that have uh, yeah, raised hundreds of millions of dollars, are all billion-dollar companies, and had very interesting growth phases. So he has a lot of experience to share because he's actually done it. He has actually um, scaled these or helped scale these companies um, through different phases. So enjoy the interview. Looking forward to your feedback. And yeah. All right, Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Where are you joining in from? Uh, dialing in from uh, Mexico today. I'm just uh, working remotely from out here for, uh, for, two, for two, three months. Nice. Where, where are you usually based? Uh, usually I'm based in Amsterdam, but it's pretty cold and, uh, and locked down there right now. So I'm spending a few times, uh, uh, a little bit of time with a few friends who all work in tech companies. And we all just got a house together and figured we'd isolate uh, as friends together here. Nice. Okay. Interesting. So you, your journey started like maybe like 15 years ago, your, your working journey, but at a very interesting point, you joined Uber in, in the US at around 2013, I think. Um, how, how was it for you back then, like joining in, into such a company and then having a role um, at the end as head of, head of growth or head of expansion, I think? Um, just elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, I started out of university working in finance and I worked in, um, in trading for six years. And then in 2013, and I was based in London. And in 2013, I joined Uber as one of their first employees in Europe um, as part of their expansion team, which is a team that took Uber to new countries around the world. So joined the team and the first city I actually launched and set up was Zurich. Um, because I, I speak German as well. So they think they'd send me there first. But then after sort of four months in Zurich, quickly went and spent four months in Cape Town and then Berlin and then Istanbul, Lagos, Nigeria, you know, Vienna, you, you name it. Um, just sipped around the sort of the Europe, Middle East and Africa region and city by city started setting up the company. So uh, how, how, so was it always the same process? You're like replicating it from city to city or how, how does it look like when you say like launching a service that already exists in a different country, in a new country? Yeah, we had a, we had a pretty, well, at the time it was still a very dynamic playbook of how to set up a new, a new city and a new country. And over time we refined that process and then had a pretty, you know, I think the, the first 50 cities were probably each city was quite unique. Um, and every city after that was unique the city itself as well. But the process became more and more, um, you know, as we learned a process. So it was about at the time, if you remember, there was only, there wasn't Uber X or Uber Pool. It was just Uber Black. So the process was just, okay, like, let's find the first 10, 20 limousines. Um, and then let's start hiring a local team. And, um, and the idea was train up the local team instill some of the company DNA and them 
And then once they're ready to go, you leave that team behind and you move on to the next to the next city in the next country instead of being uh, there again. Got it. So, so what were uh, your responsibilities like um, in, in that process? Like what, what did you exactly do? Yeah. So if you think about it, the original team at Uber in every, in every city was a, a general manager, so the head of the city. And then there was a marketing manager and an operations manager. The marketing manager effectively took care of the demand side. So ensure that more and more people start using Uber and then the operations manager was in charge of um, getting limousine drivers and more limousine drivers online. So one person looking after the supply side, one person looking after the demand side, and one person having overall responsibility of the country. So as a launcher, you effectively have to do all those three things in a city until you hire those And, and you were the launcher, basically? Yes. So the launcher was the GM, the marketing manager, and the ops manager together. And then you hired those three people. And once you've hired those three people and trained those three people, you were allowed to go to the next city. So the idea was always, how quickly can you get that team set up, hire great, great talent locally, and then move on. So, you know, it was a, it was a very fulfilling role because you kept being able to build these small teams. And then years later, you go back and you see those, those teams of three turn into a team of 10 or 20 or 30. And I'm still very close with the team that, you know, I set up in Zurich, the team that I set up in Cape Town, um, and on and on and on. How many teams did you set up in total in, in that phase? Um, myself, probably eight or nine. And then I, I was put in charge of all the launchers in the region. So obviously then all those launchers started setting up those teams and I would help coordinate that. So You know, it's uh, it's still nice to see sort of all these country teams around the world. Whenever I visit um, cities around around Europe, there's always a few friends there that I can visit because I used to work together with them. So it's nice. Got it. Yeah, and then so that was probably then if I if I look at your uh, 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 agenda, basically 2014, 15, and then you you left the company in 2016, right? Yeah, so I, for two and a, for the first two and a half years, I was on the expansion team, and I did, actually didn't have an apartment for two and a half years. I literally just moved, lived in, in apartments and, uh, and hotels, which is Holy very shit. bizarre. Um, and then... The what was your years, favorite really, place during that period? And, and what... Yeah, no, go ahead. Probably Cape Town. I think the, the people there... Um, the energy there, it's got to be probably between Cape Town and Tel Aviv. I think those two cities are just magical cities. If, if anyone who's listening hasn't been to those two cities, I would put them high up on the, on the travel list. And, um, and yeah, I've got, I've got fond memories of the, the, the teams there and the people there and just the time there. And, um, but yeah, so I, I did that for two and a half years. And then for the last year, because I was, I was at, at Uber for about three and a half years, I moved from... Um, from expansion and from operations, which is really sort of half the company over the product. And I joined the growth product team, uh, which is a team responsible for getting more, you know, from a product perspective, more riders and more drivers on the platform. And I joined the supply growth team, which is how do we build features that get drivers excited to be online, to join the company. And there was all about efficiency. So, you know, I think it used to be like 180 steps or so to become an Uber driver. And we were like, okay, well, how can we streamline that down to, you know, more like 
80 or, or, or 70 steps and just make it easier and easier for people to become Uber drivers and earn money on the platform. Got it. In, in which city did it uh, work best that, that you launched? Like which city worked best and, and, and why do you think it worked, did it work best? Just Uber in general? Yeah, uh, like the cities you launched. Yeah, look, I think it, what was really exciting at the time was different cities work really well for different reasons. I remember when we launched in Zurich, people were telling me, you know, Patrick, we don't need, we don't need, uh, we don't need Uber in Zurich. You know, every taxi in Zurich is an E-class or an S-class Mercedes. If you've ever been there, it's, it's, it's crazy. But people in Zurich really loved the convenience. Instead of going out and having to stick your hand up in the, in the rain, um, you could just push a button and the, the car would pull up, you know, before you walked out. In Cape Town and Johannesburg, Uber exploded on the scene and it was the safety element that people really liked. Jo Johannesburg, quite, quite dangerous city. People really liked the fact you could see who your driver was before you showed up. Anyone in Johannesburg can buy a taxi lamp, you know, online and stick it on their car and pretend to be a taxi driver. But because we did the, the background checks with the drivers and verified them, people felt more comfortable because the car came And you were less likely to get into the car where someone then ended up, you know, robbing you because he pretended to be a taxi driver. So that was the, the safety element there, um, which uh, across a lot of Africa, Asia, the developing countries, the safety element always really worked well. In the more developed countries, the, the convenience factor worked really well. And then as we layered in UberX and UberPool, the price point made it really exciting for a lot of people. So it always kind of really depended on the product and the place, but there was always something quite exciting that, that different people liked about the product. Got it. And, and do you remember how big Uber was back then when you joined in 2013? When I joined, we were in, I think, 15 or 16 cities in the world. So we were in, you know, a couple of cities in the US, obviously. And I think we were in two, three cities in Asia and maybe four or five cities in, in Europe. And that was it. So it was pretty, I think wow. when I joined Europe, we were in London, we were in Milan, um, Paris, and London, Milan, Paris, not, not, not much else. One or two. Got it. And how many, how many people did you have, have back then? Like how big was the team? Remember that? I think we were about 160, 170 worldwide. And That was mostly obviously in San Francisco um, where we had the HQ and the engineering and all the central resources. And then I think we had about 15 people in Asia and maybe, you know, 15, 20 people in Europe. So I said it was, a, it was a pretty small team in Europe. Wow. So now it's a couple thousand people, right? Isn't it? Now the company is, I think, 20,000 or so plus with, you know, yeah, a couple of thousand <laughs> Amsterdam alone is almost a, a thousand people in the, in the European headquarter. Crazy, crazy. Okay. So you, you, you joined Uber, you left after three and a half years and then you joined Vault, right? As a COO or what did you do there? Correct. Um, left Uber, um, was hired and recruited by Vault, which is a European food delivery startup. Um, based out of it just business. pushed hard into Berlin like the last couple of months I'm like it was always like Lieferando the, the orange uh, like uh, delivery service and now in Berlin it's crazy you always see these blue people on the streets uh, crazy yep so when I joined Volt I joined as a, the chief operating officer um, at the time 
was I think in four or five cities in Finland, the idea was really to go to go global and they wanted someone with the experience of taking a company um, to many countries and many cities. And um, it was really exciting because I got to take all the learnings that I had at Uber and, uh, and apply them somewhere else. So very quickly, we went from four or five cities to I think 45 cities, um, expanded across the Nordics, across um, the Baltics and Eastern Europe. And, um, and since then, um, you know, I was there for, for a year and a half before I went on to, uh, to Bird. But it's been really exciting to see the team take, um, you know, take what we sort of set up and, and kept, keep on replicating that. And similarly to Uber, it was, you know, we have an expansion team, we have a launch team, we have country managers, and um, it was exciting to see, and it's still exciting to see how they keep, um, keep building and building, and now sort of coming, coming into Germany and some other bigger markets as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, interesting to see that. Now for the past yeah. three years, you have actually been at Bird. Um, I, I think I first saw like these bird scooters when I was in, I think it was in Brussels, Belgium, like in 2018, I think. I was, it was like crazy to me to, to ride these things. The first time I was like, wow, like this is sick. Yes. Thank you. What, what made you join the company? Yeah. My, my old boss from, um, from Uber. Um, who, who was it? Was it Mickey? No, it was uh, Travis Vanderzanen. So no, okay. Um, so Travis, who was my boss, who ran the growth team at Uber, he started Bird. And knowing, I think, the potential of the company, I think just a few weeks into the company existing, called me and said, hey, come to LA, just ride a scooter once with me and then see what you think. So I went to LA, rode a scooter and was like, wow, okay, this is amazing. And he was like, yes, I need you to get working on this immediately in Europe, even though we were barely getting started in Santa Monica. Because I think we've, we've learned from whether it's Uber or Volt and food delivery, if you've got a great idea, very quickly, people are going to start copying it. And yep. so um, we, uh, we went um, and immediately get it, started getting going on Europe, which is a good thing because not... So was Bird the first like, e-scooter rider? Uh, 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 yeah, provider. Bird was the first shared e-scooter company. And then you know, three, four months after we started, um, Lime, which at the time was just doing bicycles, pivoted into scooters. And then very quickly you saw all the European, um, you know, copycat start up and, you know, uh, Tier, Voy, you know, um, Cirque, you, you name it. Every, every European country now has a sort of a, 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 a scooter. Company. Has its own one. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's, you know, obviously it's, uh, you know, competition, I think is always a good thing because it gets you the best thing for the, um, the customer. And generally it's also a validation that you're doing something, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a compliment, um, when people, Definitely. When people um, do, do what you're doing because it means you're doing something right. And so now obviously, you know, we have to compete on, on having the best hardware, having the best software, um, having the best, um, you know, just the best service and the best operations. And it's great. It keeps everyone on their toes. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. So how much does a scooter cost? Um, well, it depends. Uh, we've got various, so we've started designing our own scooters and, um, the exact price, like we don't really disclose externally, but they're a couple hundred euros each similar to when, you, if you would buy one privately. So, so how long does it take <clears throat> to one scooter's profitable basically? Sorry, say that again. Uh, how long does it take till, till a scooter is profitable or how many rides does a scooter need 
because I, we hear it all always in the news, like it's not profitable or they break after like six months. So like, how does, how does the business model work um, yeah. behind that? It's, it's been really exciting to see how the economics have shifted. So we very quickly realized that the scooters that you buy off the shelf, which were the only scooters that's available at the time, which were individually for personal use design scooters, weren't really designed for commercial use. So those scooters that we used back in, in 2018, when you would have taken it in Brussels, were literally scooters that you or, or anyone else can buy on Amazon. And we would take them, we would retrofit them and put them on the, on the streets. Um, since then, we've already started designing our own scooters in-house um, that were designed and built for commercial use. <laughs> Think of it this way. A car that you buy, that you drive twice a day, is very differently designed than a Berlin city bus that's designed to take, you know, have 10,000 people step on and off the bus every day. Suspensions, everything else, like the wear and tear. <laughs> so we built scooters now that, um, you know, if you think about it, the original scooters, they would probably quickly, after three, four months, be worn out. Now, the commercial grade scooters that we've built, they last upwards of two years. So obviously then the economics change massively because you can earn on a scooter for two years before you have to sort of start replacing, replacing parts of it. Yeah. Got it. No, that's, that's interesting. So uh, wh who is the biggest player now in the market? What, what do you think? Is it bird? Is it lime? Yeah, I think, I mean, globally, um, the most cities anyone is in is, is bird. I think the two global players are lime, and then you have regional players around the world. You have smaller companies in Asia, you've got smaller companies in Europe. Um, But yeah, I think, um, you know, Bird has always from day one said, we want to be the, uh, the global company. We want to be, you know, even if you think about out of back in ride sharing days, right? You had, you had Uber and Lyft in the US and then Lyft really never went anywhere else but the US and, and Uber really came, became the global company. And sure, you have players in Asia, you've got, you've got Didi in Asia, you've got Kareem in the Middle East or whatever. But, you know, Uber always had the, the, the goal of being the, the global brand. And I think birds do the same thing where we really said we want to be the global player and we are the global player. Got it. So what's the, what's the strategy behind it? Does, does bird, for example, now want to buy all the other companies or is it like just let them die because they're not getting funded anymore? Or what, what do you, what do you say? Did you guys buy any, any other scooter companies down the road? Yeah. So I think, you know, as a company, you're always going to look at opportunities and that includes competitive opportunities that includes, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions. I think generally we haven't seen a lot of companies where, you know, you're buying something, you're buying like intellectual property. It's like, if we're looking at different companies, what are they really doing? They're buying a lot of them. They're buying scooters that they didn't design themselves from companies in China and, um, and using sometimes third party software. So a lot of times it's not really interesting. Um, to buy other companies. We have in the past two years bought two companies. We bought Scoot, uh, San Francisco-based um, scooter company, um, which also did mopeds and bicycles. So it was interesting to learn about the moped and the bicycle business there. And then we also bought Cirque in, uh, in Germany um, as well. So, you know, two times where we've done mergers and, um, you know, it's not something we, we rule out, but I think generally we like, you know, the bird offering and what we do. And we tend to want to compete on that rather than, you know, acquire local players. 
do you write bird yourself when you were, when you were back in Amsterdam? Well, in Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands, um, I would say last year or this year, the Netherlands and the UK were really the last two countries in Europe that don't allow, um, oh, really? not just shares, but any scooters, um, electric scooters are just not allowed in the UK and in the Netherlands. So UK actually just changed the laws and is starting, um, electric scooter trials. Um, the Netherlands, I'm hopeful will, um, will start allowing them next year, but yeah, it's uh, it's a bit frustrating our European headquarters in Amsterdam, but it's the one city where we're, <laughs> where we're not allowed to use them. Well, was you, so you're, uh, I think we haven't mentioned that you're the, uh, uh, head of, um, the European and, and African region of, of bird, right? What, what's your biggest challenge in that role? What do you think is, yeah, the, the thing that's the hardest for you to, to execute? I think, I mean, Right now, I would say it's um, having everyone work remotely. I think, um, you know, just being on Zoom with everyone is is okay for a while, but over time you do see the cracks um, here and there. I think, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about, okay, like working remotely, it's great. And I think it's a very, it's a, it's a one dimensional view. Like what you're, what you're missing is, It's fine, like if you and I have worked together for years that we start, you know, for the next six months work on Zoom, but for new joiners, for, you know, people that are, that are working together for the first time, you miss all these little human interactions that you get before or after meetings or at lunch. And so, you know, I always say, you know, the, the, the German national soccer team could play like four or five games without their trainer, without their coach, right? because they, they work well, but once like new, new team members join and over time you could see the team probably wouldn't do as well as if they trained together with the trainer and, um, and had them on the field. So I do think and see now that we're sort of entering almost a year of working remote that I do start seeing sort of the cracks in the facade and it's good to bring the teams back together. And it's, it's also very tough. Um, we try to have like small get togethers or people go for walks in the park and so on, but um, you know, all within the, The rules that are in guidelines that are provided by the by the by the various countries, but it's it's just not the same. So I would say, you know, keeping keeping the teams really working together and the team morale high in times like this is is not is 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 a challenge. But um, but it's been amazing to see how people are figuring out unique ways. You know, having happy hours on Zoom, which are always really fun, um, and check out um, drinks and stuff like that. Exactly. <laughs> how the world adapts relatively quickly yeah nice got it so you're in in my opinion to see that from an external perspective very passionate about growth and like like scaling something or or helping a company scale from a to b what else are you passionate about as a as a person yeah i mean for me the passion is really about the people like i'm super excited um yes like i've, I've had the the They're fortunate to be at a, a company that have grown fast, but I find if um, it's not me who's growing the companies, it's the people that I have the privilege of like interviewing and hiring and, and working with that do that work. So I always believe in the fact that, you know, if you put the people first, they can put the company in the numbers first and the growth first. And it's just been, for me, the passion is all these teams that I've got to work with and hire. <coughs> and, you know, so many of them we've become not just colleagues, but close friends. I mean, some of my best friends are people that I've worked with at Uber or hired at Uber and that are now doing 
their own startups and their own companies. And it's just wonderful to see how they're all developing and growing. And for me, that's really the, the thing that I'm probably the most passionate about. So do you also see yourself at some point in the next few years starting your own company or like doing something on your own now that you have been like in, in these basically roles, full-time roles last 10, 10 years of your life? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of um, friends of mine who started talking about different ideas and things that might be fun to do. I think, um, you know, after, I think, you know, Bird is a super exciting opportunity right now. Um, and certainly I've kind of thought, okay, well, it's my third startup, um, where I'm helping someone else build their startup. Maybe the, maybe the next one might be one that I do myself, but it also means that you have to find a great idea first. And so I have to spend a little bit of time of thinking about what, what the, you know, what problem, what problem needs solving next, and then maybe find a few of my, uh, my friends from, from past companies and, and figure out how to solve that problem. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's nice. We've met a lot of incredible people down down the road um what, what would be interesting for me to know is what do you think as you have been basically through the same process now at three different and all of the three companies are very successful um companies what, what do you think is is the core skill that you brought into these different companies where you're like that's just something i'm really really good at yeah i think um if i think about sort of all my my upward feedback that I've always gotten in, um, in, uh, in the various companies, I think, um, what I keep being told is that, um, pragmatism is one thing, just getting, you know, getting to the solution. I think a lot of times people, you know, do you want to be, do you want to be right academically or do you want to get it done? I think I've always been a, a fan of just getting, getting things done and over the line. And can you do one more thing, you know, every day, can you do one more thing every week? And I think if you do that every day and every hour, you can do a lot more things than the other guy. And that what, you know, competitively sets you apart. I think um, the other thing is just building and realizing that to, to go anywhere, you have to go together and building amazing teams. I think, you know, um, you can do a lot by yourself, but you can do a lot more as, as a team. And so um, I've always prided myself on hiring and finding great talent and also sometimes unconventional uh, talent. I don't just look for the sort of the same resume, but really look for the passion in people that are really excited to join um, the company. Uh, and then, you know, for me, I think it's always been about, as I said, like staying, staying calm in, in stressful situations. I think there's always a million things flying around. And I think if you don't stay calm and relaxed uh, in the chaos, then, you know, it can, it can kind of burn you out. Um, I've never really minded the, um, the speed of startups. It's, 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 it's really exciting and I don't mind the hours and, and everything, but it's because I, I enjoy what I do. And I think that that really resonates through um, when I work with people is that they, they understand that I re I'm really excited to do what I'm doing. And I, I never want to be at a company where I'm not enjoying what I'm doing anymore. Yeah. Interesting. Do you have any specific principles that you figure out for yourself that you apply um, to or that you apply to, to your job if you're working in, in a startup and, and, and helping it grow? Like, yeah. do, do you see any, any patterns between these three, three startups now? Yeah, I would say um, giving people a lot of autonomy is one. I think if you hire smart people, um, 
they're not going to want to be told all day long what to do. Um, you hire them. I mean, I think it was, um, it was a Steve Jobs who first said like hire smart people and then get out of their way. I think that's always really resonated with me. Um, I, um, I try to give even early on, sometimes people have said in the past that I, I've given them too much, too much responsibility, but I'd rather sort of push people into the deep end because I just find if you, if I give you something and it's yours and you, you're told you can make all the decisions about it, you care much more than if you're just passing on, you know, orders or decisions. And so, you know, a lot of times very quickly, you know, I'd hire a new country manager and they'd be like, be the third day on the job. And I was like, like what do I do here? And I was like, I don't know. You tell me, what do you want to do? It's your, it's your country. It's your market. It's your business. <laughs> and all of a sudden this thinking and you build more and more people that are just getting, you know, things done on their own rather than coming and running to their boss every time there's a problem. And I Asking think what to do. Yeah. And so I think like, <laughs> you know, one of my now best friends always said, um, who I hired, who was one of the launchers at, at Uber that I hired, always said that I really taught him sort of the, the stoic mindset of just, you know, if, um, you know, control the things that you can control and don't worry about the things you can't control. And, um, and he now, you know, sometimes calls me and says, Hey, you know, it really helped me early on because you just pushed me. It was weird at the time because I felt like you weren't there enough for me, but it really taught me to solve my own problems. And, um, and I'm still there. Like ultimately, like my, my rule was always, you know, what's the problem? What's the solution? If there's multiple solutions, is there a one, one solution that's clearly the best solution? If that's, if there's a clearly a best solution, just do that. You don't have to come and ask me, right? If there's a problem, there's A, B, and C, and A is clearly the best answer. Why even run it by me? I'm just going to agree with you on A. Like, let's save each other time and do it. And so um, sort of the, the principle of, um, you know, easier to ask for forgiveness and ask for permission. Um, I've always told people like, look, just go do your thing. If you make a mistake, that's fine. Like, you know, if, if out of a hundred decisions, one is wrong, I'm not going to rip anyone's head off. And uh, for that one thing, I'd rather you, you have done the other 99. I think that's been the reason why, like, I learned that really at Uber. It's like move fast, fast, fast. I think the, the sort of the, the ultimate sin in startups is to not just go left or right, but to stand still. Like it's fine if you go left and that was a wrong decision and then you go back and you go right. But I think just standing still and wondering, should I go left or right? That's the, that's the mortal sin because otherwise someone's just going to outpace you and outspeed you. Definitely. Yeah. And I think especially now through remote work, people have to adapt to, to do things in their own way because there's no one sitting next to them telling them what to do or giving them feedback all day long. Correct. So, yeah. Got it. Okay. Patrick, then let's wrap up here with a fantastic four. Question number one, is there a CEO that you're following or studying right now? Um, Richard Branson has been someone that I've always been excited about. I really love, he was the first one that I kind of heard always say, you know, um, that a lot of people always say like the customer, the customer comes first and, um, you know, and Richard always says, you know, that's not right. That you put the employees first so they can put the customers first. And I really, really agree with that mindset. You know, I hear companies all the time and say, you know, numbers come first or the customers or the product. Um, I really believe if you put the people first, they can put, you know, whatever your ultimate goal is first, they can put the customers first, they can put growth first, they can put, you know, whatever yeah. you want to achieve. You can't, no one, there's very, very few companies where you can say that one person built that company on their own. 
Um, ultimately, it's always a big team of people that do it and you need to take care of that team. And I think that's really exciting when, and really resonates with me. Got it. Uh, next question. Do you have any routines that you strictly follow on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, I make my bed first thing every morning. Um, I saw this <laughs> video, video a long time ago about how if you make your bed in the morning, um, you can achieve anything. It really stuck with me. And, um, and then I always set aside an hour in the morning um, to do one specific, like big chunky thing that I know I have to do. And I, I do that before I check my email or do anything because I find as, you know, if you open your laptop first thing in the morning and check your email, immediately you start doing stuff that other, like you start doing stuff for other people that and responding to yeah. their email. And before sort of my time gets kind of taken away because all of a sudden there's all these little So it's like something out. personal, like a personal project, personal thing or... No, it's, uh, well, I do, I do, I try to do a personal thing every day as well, but it's, it's, it's just like a, if I, usually, you know, that you have like 15 little things to do or 20 little things or a hundred little things, but there's usually one like big things that you have to do for me. It's usually the one that most people are waiting on. Like, so I just, uh, every night I write down what that thing is that I'm going to do the first thing in the morning in that one hour. So it's like, Hey, I really need to get this presentation done and out because 40 people are depending on it, or I really need to send this email. Got This is the most important meeting I'm going to have tomorrow. So let's do that first. And I just, you know, think about this one thing that I really need to get done. And that kind of, I read this article a long time ago, it talked about the, the, the daily frog. And um, it's this Mark Twain quote that says like, if you eat a frog in the morning, um, that's like the worst thing you'll do all day. So the rest of the day, like looks up and it just, the idea is do the the toughest or most difficult task first, and then everything is a breeze afterwards. Because we tend to, as a, you know, as people, you know, sometimes we procrastinate, right? Like if you, some of us, you know, if you remember at university, you have to write a university paper, all of a sudden you like clean your room first, or you do like, you know, all these little things first before you get to the difficult task. And sometimes it's just easier to just tackle the difficult task first, and then everything is a breeze afterwards. So I'd probably say just doing that is one thing. I try to do sports every day. Um, I have some uh, some reminders on my phone to drink a glass of water every every couple of hours because sometimes I'm so busy that I forget to, you know, yeah. I, I get to like 6 p.m. and I realize that I didn't drink all day. Um, staying hydrated, um, that's that's about it. Got it. Okay, uh, second last question. What's your favorite social media platform for business and what do you specifically use it for? Yeah, I probably, I would say I use, I use LinkedIn more than other than any other app, um, more than Instagram, more than I barely use Facebook these days, but I get a lot of my news from LinkedIn. I follow people that I'm interested in on LinkedIn and, um, you know, connect with people. I mean, I think that's, uh, that's how we met originally, uh, via LinkedIn. That's and, um, and then at the, act, at the, yeah, true. And at the, and at the, and then at the conference we met in person, but uh, I would say LinkedIn for sure. Got it. Okay. Last question, Patrick, what do you wish you knew when you were 20 years old? What I wish I knew when I was 20 years old. I think I would have, I would have liked to have known that it's, it's, it's not, it's almost more important who you work for as an individual than it is what company you work for. So I would say like at 20, you know, as you start work for, it's less important. You can work at a not successful company, but work for an amazing individual. And they will teach you and they will teach you a lot. 
And so I would say like at that young age in your early twenties, work for someone that you can really learn from. I was really lucky coming out of university. Um, I worked at Citigroup for the first couple of years and I worked for a, a boss who really, and a manager who really taught me a lot about just like how to be better as a person, as a human, um, how to make sure that, you know, you do what, like, just do the tasks that you're told really well and do one thing well and then do another thing well. And that, you know, compounds over time. And um, he really taught me, there's no way you know everything at 22, but you don't have to know everything. You just have to, you know, one step at a time. And, you know, I think compounding interest, right? It's, it's a thing that we learn about. It's not just yeah. a thing. You and it's also, you know, your knowledge compounds, your experience compounds, and it accelerates really all the time. Like careers aren't linear. They really, I think for me, I've grown so much in the last, so much more in the last like four or five years of my career than I have in the, in the 10 before. And I'm sure it'll be, or I hope it will be in the, in the five, five years to come. And so being a little patient and realizing that all these little things, you know, build on top of each other um, is super important. Yeah, got it. I can, I can agree on that. Thank you so much for being on the show, Patrick. Thank you so much, Tom.